I say this every year, but for me, uh, this liturgy is my favorite of Holy Week. And one of the reasons it is, is that there's the opportunity to sort of come to grips with the whole issue of the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus and the means by which we understand that suffering to have some redemptive content. So this morning, or uh, this afternoon, I'm going to say some things about um, some obstacles to coming to grips with this, to say some things to you about the three readings we just heard from uh, Isaiah, the fourth suffering servant song, from the letter to the Hebrews, and from John's gospel. And then I'm going to say some things about the atonement, as I always do, and how we understand this uh, in terms of uh, coming to grips with this issue. And finally, to say something about how we understand our own suffering. And uh, is there any redemption in uh, the suffering that we undergo, both personally and corporately as a people? So that's the thing. This liturgy uh, is very old, and we have an account of what was done in Jerusalem in the 5th century by a nun or perhaps just a pious laywoman from Gaul. And she made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the 400s, and she kept a diary of what it was that she uh, experienced. There's, I have a copy of it. It's called Egeria's Travels. Her name was Egeria. Some say it was Etheria. But she went and went to Jerusalem, and she meticulously wrote down what they did during Holy Week. So the liturgy that we uh, celebrate today uh, connects back to that very old source. And remember Baumstark's Law, the most ancient and early liturgies are used on the most solemn days in the Christian calendar. So that's an important thing. So let me read some things to you first about the whole issue of uh, people who find this hard to understand. There's a, there's a movement both within the church and certainly outside that says, you know, this is, how can you base a religion on what in the world happened on Good Friday? It just doesn't seem to be comprehensible. This is not new. It's been going on for a long time. But I want to mightily resist this. Every other year or so, I read this quotation from the poet W.H. Auden that he reproduced in his commonplace book, A Certain World. My mother gave me a copy of it when, in 1968. So he has an entry. It's all alphabetical. Good Friday. Good. Just as we were all potentially in Adam when he fell... So we were all potentially in Jerusalem on the first Good Friday before there was an Easter, a Pentecost, a Christian, or a church. It seems to me worthwhile asking ourselves who we should have been 
and what we should have been doing. None of us, I am certain, will imagine himself as one of the disciples, cowering in agony of spiritual despair and physical terror. Very few of us are big wheels enough to see ourselves as Pilate, or good churchmen enough to see ourselves as a member of the Sanhedrin. In my most optimistic mood, I see myself as a Hellenized Jew from Alexandria visiting an intellectual friend. We are walking along, engaged in philosophical argument. Our path takes us past the base of Golgotha. Looking up, we see an all too familiar sight, three crosses surrounded by a jeering crowd. Frowning with grim distaste, I say it's disgusting the way the mob enjoys such things. Why can't the authorities execute criminals humanely and in private by giving them hemlock to drink as they did with Socrates? Then, averting my eyes from the disagreeable spectacle, I resume our fascinating discussion about the nature of the true, the good, and the beautiful. So fast forward to the early 2000s and listen to what Alan Jones wrote in his book, Reimagining Christianity. An Englishman who was an expert on Eastern thought was touring Grace Cathedral in San Francisco a few years ago on looking at the Spanish crucifix near the south doors, he unthinkingly said to me, why would anyone worship that? The crucifix is late 13th century and is very beautiful, a picture of poignant and deep love and sadness. I don't think he meant to offend, but I wanted to react with an equally crass question. Why do Buddhists revere that grinning little fat guy? So this is where that can lead, you know. So we need to sort of stand at some remove from that. The early Christians saw Jesus on every page of the Bible. The Bible they knew was the Greek Bible, not the Hebrew, the Greek Old Testament, the translation from Hebrew. It certainly would have been the case for the author of John's Gospel, which we read from today. Matthew and Paul would have known the Bible in Hebrew. And Palestinian hearers, the paraphrases in the Aramaic vernacular known as Targums. Aramaic is a language very much like Hebrew. Uh, it's sort of like the difference, this is not completely accurate, uh, the difference between Spanish and Italian. So Jesus spoke Aramaic. It was the, lingua, it was the language of the people in Palestine where he lived and exercised his earthly ministry. I mention this because the early Christians and the Christians who began to write about the meaning of the cross 
found in the Bible the person of Christ in each word and story, precept, precept and psalm. So this is by way of background when we speak about the reading from Isaiah. The early Christians understood the Hebrew scriptures or the Greek translation as part of the grand narrative. They saw that this was coming from Genesis. And they began to see in the great stories and narrative of, of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, that it was all going to culminate in this event. And that somehow all of the creation was going to be affected by what happened, like throwing a stone in a pond and seeing the rings come out and radiate out from the center where the stone went into the water. So today we read in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the fourth suffering servant song. There are four of them in Isaiah from about chapter uh, 50 or 40 on through. And we're reading chapters 52 and 53. And it's not a very pleasant story in the beginning, it had absolutely, it certainly had nothing to do with Jesus, but what it had to do with were two things. Uh, the fate of the prophets of Israel often, and the fate of the people for ignoring these prophetic utterances, and the suffering that would accrue as the result. And the early Christians began to look back and see this fourth suffering servant song as an example of Jesus and what he went through and how we understand this. The great New Testament scholar, one of them in our tradition in the 20th century, Reginald Fuller, said because the early church saw the cross in light of Jesus' whole ministry, it found in Isaiah 53 an almost perfect prophecy of the Passion and used it as a quarry for its own theological statements about the Passion. They are an attempt to capture in words for those who did not have the direct experience of the crucifixion, the meaning of a real flesh and blood history as the action of God pro nobis, which in Latin means, and for our salvation. So we have Isaiah as the setup as we move now through the other readings. From Hebrews, we have the reading about who Jesus represented in his priesthood. A new priesthood in which all of us as Christian people through our baptism share. You've heard the term the priesthood of all believers and how we understand that somehow through the mighty works of Jesus Christ, he has pierced the curtain in the temple and allowed all of us to come through to be part of this royal priesthood. And it's, attached, it, it, it's the result of Jesus' sympathy for human weakness as the result of his own earthly experiences. It is the answer to his prayer for deliverance and his learning of obedience. Let this cup pass from me, but if not, your will be done. 
Think about your own life. Have you ever had a situation where you've had to do that or say that? The author of the letter to the Hebrews understands all of us are caught up in Christ's sacrifice and are enabled in him to offer ourselves, our souls and bodies in union with his sacrifice and are in turn transformed by his sacrifice. And that means, as Mother McNeil said last night in her sermon, each one of us needs to labor to make a world where it is easier for people to be good. We need to be out there, concerned about those things. John's Gospel provides us, I, I, we read a shortened version of this today because we avoided all of the conversation in the Passion Gospel um, that might be considered, frankly, anti-Semitic. And so we started with the uh, Pilate binding Jesus over to be crucified, which is something I think might be a good plan. And evangelists, each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have their own perspective about uh, what happened uh, on the cross. And for John, Jesus is the Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed for us. And at his death, he announces the completion of his sacrifice. It is finished. In Latin, it's consumatum est, which is a maybe stronger way to understand that in some of the original languages. So that's a good segue into the atonement. What did we do with this? The early Christians were trying to make sense out of what it meant and how we understand this. And you've heard me speak a lot in the last uh, few Good Fridays about uh, difficulties with certain theories of the atonement. Years ago, I read and reread it from time to time, a little book called uh, Creeds in the Making by Ian Richardson. And in one of the chapters, he talks about the atonement. And he said, all of the theories of the atonement are just that their theories. And so that means that each one of us is able to create our own theory of the atonement, if we would wish. Here are four. The, the Christus Victor, which is my favorite one, that Jesus uh, triumphed over the powers of evil and changed the world by virtue of taking the weight for all of us this is considered the classical view. The other one that I like is the moral influence theory. My first bishop, Kilmer Myers, during World War II was in Hamburg after the war. And he was meeting there with a Lutheran pastor. And he said, uh, most all the city was no higher now than two feet high. So he said to this Lutheran pastor, how in the world can you survive this, going through all of this suffering and difficulty? And he said, only look at the cross. Keep your eye on the cross. Keep your eye on the cross. And somehow there is a way that we do that that has a kind of inspiration 
because it connects in some ways to our own suffering. And finally, there's one that uh, I have railed against called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement, which many evangelical Christians uh, believe is the only authentic theory of the atonement. And Alan Jones, again, in the same book that uh, I talked about earlier, says that uh, making Jesus vengeful has alienated many people from the church forever. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, said, the evangelical understanding of penal substitution is like in an English public school where the headmaster is the tyrannical father who says, okay, you're acting out, beat up on my son and everything will be fine. That's a caricature of what this is. So I'm going to make a commercial message today for saying that maybe the theories of the atonement need to be blended together because each one of them has uh, something to offer in their own way. So let me say a word now about suffering and what it is and then maybe think about our own suffering Suffering is the disruption of inner human harmony caused by physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional forces experienced as isolating and threatening our very existence. As the deprivation of human good, suffering is inseparable from the mystery of evil. However, suffering and evil are not caused by God, the author of all good, but are inherent in the universe's natural processes and in the uniqueness of human freedom in the misuse of free will that is the moral evil of sin. So I got to thinking because of my own recent experience, uh, how do we make sense of our own suffering and what we go through? And one of the things that I started thinking about was uh, in what way have I participated in my own suffering? How in some way have I uh, conspired to uh, increase the amount of suffering that I have gone through? And I think that's true for many people trying to make sense out of it. There is a hair-raising devotion in Western Christianity that is devotion to the five wounds. The five wounds of Jesus. I think there's a Roman Catholic Church in San Jose called the Church of the Five Wounds. It's a Portuguese parish in San Jose. And my friend David Holton, who's a priest of the Anglican Church of Canada, when we were in seminary, preached a sermon in the chapel about the five wounds, not as a commercial message that we take up this hair-raising devotion, but as an understanding of the five wounds as something that personally can be felt by each human being based on what they went, have gone through in their life. But more to the point, he said, is how do we understand how we inflict those wounds on other people? And how do we understand 
that in some way uh, Jesus accomplished on the cross a thing that liberates us from the necessity uh, to be burdened in that way. The German language uh, called in German, they call this day Karfreitag or Hard Friday. Jesus did indeed die hard to win the softest, gentlest treasure, life through him and with him and in him. And maybe that's why in English we call this Friday good. <laughs>